Once in a while I get a request on something I've never even heard of. Doesn't happen that often. So when I got a request for Moon, my first reaction was, huh? And you know, I was like, oh, oh, it's it's a movie, apparently. It's apparently some kind of film. I've never even heard of this film. Apparently it came out in 2009. I'm not actually sure how this one uh, skipped across my radar. So I'm like, okay, I'll go ahead and look into this. Start watching a bit of it. Wait, I know this film! Because a friend of mine had actually seen this and had already discussed the totality of its premise with me. So, without actually really meaning to, I kind of went into this one already knowing both of the major twists in it. That being stated, I don't think it, in this one case it reduced my enjoyment of the work. Something about knowing and being able to pick up on the details kind of added to the overall experience for me. Because I, I just jotted down two quick ones before I stopped taking notes on those. Um... Early on, he's got a shirt that says, Wake me when it's quitting time. Which is a fairly common term here in real life Earth, and also really horrifying when you consider it. I mean, God's sakes, towards the end of the film, like one of the last shots, when they're opening up the thing to look at Sam 5, the guy's got an automatic rifle. I mean, holy crap, you know? And, uh... <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, the, the, the song... I am the one and only, you know, I can't sing, don't mind me. But, you know, just little tidbits there that was really nice. But I have to admit, walking into this, my first reaction was basically, ah, oh, not another cloning story. Because I suppose the way I want to put this is it's become a pet peeve, not a real peeve, just a pet peeve, that too many works of science fiction in the last about a decade or so, have been trying to be like, oh my god, they're clones, as if that's some big thing, and not really doing anything with the premise other than like, oh my gosh, clones. You know, am I the real one? What does it mean to be the real person, etc., etc. So let me go ahead and say that I'm really happy that I was completely wrong on this, because this is not actually a movie about cloning nor about whether a clone is a person, or whether a clone matters, or whether a clone is real. None of that is even brought up. In fact, they just I noticed, it's actually kind of funny, they just kind of drop the idea of clones casually as if it's a normal thing, which to me implies that within this particular setting, cloning is a normal thing, or at least it was 15 years ago when this whole process started. So I'm with that, I get that, I like that, and... Instead, it focuses all of its time and attention on using a science fiction premise to do analysis and, and, and character development. You know, really looking into how people would react to certain stimuli. And I have to admit, those are the kind of science fiction stories I tend to like. So thank you, Zed, for, for uh, nominating this one and for the many people who voted for it during the last floodgates. Now... The first, gosh, 15 minutes or so is just Sam Rockwell. Oh, by the way, it's, I, I just, I'm sorry, quick aside, quick aside. I just sa saw Sam Rockwell relatively recently because I just recently did a video on Iron Man 2. It's really, really weird because from my perspective, that was last week. So I see Sam Rockwell playing Justin Hammer, and then all of a sudden I see Sam Rockwell playing Sam 5, and Sam Rockwell playing Sam 6, and it's just like, okay. 
Oh yeah, by the way, for the sake of convenience, I'm going to refer to the original Sam here in the film, the one we see at the beginning of the film, as five, and the one who is woken up during the course of the film as six. Just to make that nice and clear, because that's who they are. <clears throat> so, moving on. One of the first things I like is, is the analysis on the concept of isolation. This is something that real-life studies have done a fairly large amount of looking into, uh, both in terms of base psychology and in terms of more in-depth chemistry of how the brain functions and reacts. One of the things that has been well established in real life science is that the brain is used to absorbing an absolutely enormously, like, uncomparably large amount of data all the time. A continuous flow. The amount of information that you're picking up right now, just sitting here listening to me, is gargantuan if you think about it for a moment. Never mind the, the visual data that's going in and the audio data. But everything else that's going on with your body right now and whatever else you're hearing or whatever else you're feeling or, or maybe the chair you're in is kind of like maybe you're shifting a little bit to the left or the right. There is an insane quantity of data that's being dumped into your brain. One thing that studies have legitimately shown in real life is that when this amount of data is reduced substantially, especially on an adult, someone who is accustomed to large amounts of data, the brain basically can't cope and so starts for lack of a better term, filling in the gaps. It's like, okay, um, there has to be something here. It just makes sense if there's something here. I am reminded of, I think it was the first Twilight Zone episode, uh, Where Is Everybody? Which is a really good Twilight Zone episode, actually, considering it was one of the first ones, or maybe the first one. I'm, forgive me for not remembering. Um, it's a good one. I recommend it. Like, like all the good Twilight Zone stuff, it's really good. But it goes into detail about how this person is, is crafting this entire completely fictional fantasy life because he just can't, he's in a tube or in a, in a box with no contact with anyone for a huge period of time. Hence his brain making up this fantasy life in order to accommodate for the fact that it's getting no input. It kind of brings to mind my first question about the three years thing. Now, I notice they don't really discuss the three years uh, life cycle thing in the movie. Not really all that much. There's not a lot of exposition in the movie, which is kind of good, actually. And it also kind of speaks to the fact that they wanted to do more works in this, that they want to do more uh, stories set within the same fictional setting. I'm totally in favor of that, by the way. Although, by all accounts and everything I was able to look into, that's basically gone nowhere, which... Kind of sucks since, I mean, at this point, this was nine years ago. So, anywho, <clears throat> so one of the potential, like, like, so we've got several potential reasons for the three-year thing. But the biggest one to me, and I believe this is, this is followed through on the, on the basis of how Sam 5 is effectively starting to lose it. I don't just mean medically. I mean, how he's starting to lose it is because being in what is effectively isolation for three years is... Well, I actually don't have a more accurate or proper term for it. It is actually insane. I don't mean just like, oh, that's insane. No, I mean like in a term, in literal functional terms, that is insane. That is the kind of thing that will destroy someone's psyche. There's actually a really good chance that, that Sam 5, if he were to go home after three years, would, not, would literally not be the same person anymore. I mean, never mind talking to yourself. Most normal people talk to yourself. And granted, he does have Gertie to talk to, and thank goodness for that. If he didn't have Gertie, he'd probably go, whoo! 
and he does have some stimuli. He's got the exercise equipment, he's got his little projects, he's got his plant thing, you know. He's got things to occupy his time. He has forms of entertainment. What he does not have is that ever-crucial element of human existence, social interaction. Now, I know that's kind of a weird thing to bring up because one of the more common jokes I hear is that certain people just, ah, I don't want to interact with anyone. And one of the more common complaints I hear about human society is, ah, I don't want to interact with anyone. Everyone heads down, facing the phone, not paying attention to anything. But that really doesn't get across the point that human beings, by our very nature from the last quadrillion years, or however long, however long you want to put it out, it doesn't matter, for the last several thousand years at least, we have been intensely social creatures. I, I myself have made the statement as a gamer that gamers are inherently social creatures, that we're the kind of people who want to interact with, any, with other people. It took me a while to realize that it's just humans in general. So you remove that social interaction from someone and you have problems. Things start to go badly into those circumstances. Now, to be clear really quick, just, just really quick, I don't mean like everyone wants to constantly be an extrovert and everyone wants to constantly run out and talk to everyone, all that. That's not what I mean. Even someone who is a loner still tends to have friends that they want to hang out with and talk with. Maybe it's in a chat room, maybe it's just at their local store, maybe it's at the school. Maybe when they go to work, they have a good working relationship with their coworkers. Even introverts, and this is another thing that kind of irritates me, even introverts seek out social interactions. They just don't seek it to the same extent, or in the same way, or to the same amount that other people tend to. We are social people, and the first 20 minutes of this film do a wonderful job. I, I want to just stand up and applaud the amount of work they put into making Sam 5 incredibly relatable as someone who has effectively had no social interaction for the last three years. I'm not actually sure I can imagine what that would feel like. I, I'm pretty sure I would go stark raving mad, <laughs> and I mean that with total sincerity. Um, him having hallucinations, talking to his plants. No, no, that's... He is handling that way better than I would. Granted, I am an extrovert, but you get my point. At least I think I'm an extrovert. I don't know, I'm, I'm social. What do you want from me? <clears throat> now, at least he does have Gertie there. That's nice. That It is good. I like that. And it makes sense that Gertie would be there. First of all, it helps the film from being a complete one-man act. Uh, but second of all, it, and, and, I'm trying to think how to phrase this. Gertie serves a perfect <sighs> subversion of trope and as a character bounce. I know that's not, that's such a stupid non-professional term, but I don't give a damn. The point is that he's the kind of character that other characters can bounce off of, and thus we examine them more by their interactions with him. Gertie doesn't have much characterization in this film. He does have a little bit. Kevin Spacey actually does a surprisingly good job with a comparably small number of role, uh, lines for the role. And what I find myself thinking is, does Gertie, and I'd, I'd love to ask you guys what you think of this as well, does Gertie have droid effect happening here? We know pretty definitively that this is roughly 15 years into this whole process. Because we know Gertie, excuse me, Gertie, Sam 5 is nearing the end of his termination, and Sam 6 is just beginning in her. So 3 times 5, very simple. And the only, the only question is whether Sam 1 was merely 3 years or not. There's some uncertainties there, obviously. 
And I'll talk more about that later. But the relevant point is, over the last 15 years of having his primary programming being, I'm here to take care of you and help you, do you think that his continuous interactions with another human being has had droid effect happen on Gertie's? Now, I know, just on the off chance that some of you don't know what I mean, I usually like to point to my Lorium's page, but droid effect is very easy to explain. So, first of all, Lorium's page. I have a website, website, website. Droid effect is when a sufficiently advanced intelligence, regardless of source, is given sufficient time, uh, interactions with other sentient sapient beings, and experience, which kind of ties into the second point, in order to develop sentience and sapience over time, in the same way that human beings do, from being a newborn infant to being, you know, me, for example. So that's droid effect. And I like to think he does. I like to think that the main reason why Gertie starts to really help them out and uncover the reality of this and has issues with his own programming is because he's slowly starting to develop into more of a, for lack of a better way to put it, person over the course of the last 15 years, over the course of the lead-up to this. And I also like that idea. It helps to add a little bit of flavor to Gertie's. But more than that, it makes it all the more powerful when Gertie's then is willing to lay down what is effectively at that point a life in order to salvage not only another life, but countless other lives that might happen in the future. Remember that scene where they're down there looking at all the cryotubes, all the pre-made clones. That's years. That's centuries of people right there. And thus, Gertie's sacrifice and Sam 5's sacrifice both have weight and meaning, and they weren't for nothing, because Sam 6 does manage to get home, as we hear in the little thing at the end. <clears throat> now, um... He also, as I mentioned, he he also serves as a subversion, Gertie's, because in almost every way he comes across as Hal 9000. And we've, we've seen that trope so many times. We've seen that since the 70s. It is a very, very, very old science fiction trope that AI or robots go evil and kill or are evil and kill. Very basic. And yet, Gertie's is actually quite helpful. In fact, probably the most telling scene in the movie is actually very subtle. I was surprised at the subtlety of this film over on when Sam Five flat out says, Gertie, am I a clone? And Gertie's like, noticeable pause before saying, are you hungry? <laughs> in other words, I... Um... And looking at five and six's reaction to that says everything. The mere fact that Gertie's deflected that so hard answers the question for both of them. And both of them deal with it in certain ways, which is the next thing I want to mention. Um, one of the best parts of the film for me is showcasing how five and six both react to what is effectively life-changing and really messed up news. Hey, you're a clone. You've always been a clone. Um... And there's another clone of you right over there. I really love the way both of them react to it. First of all, Five reaches a level of denial that is legitimately insane. There's actually a scene uh, where Six is basically arguing at Five. And Five is like, no, no, Tess wouldn't let them. Tess would find out. Tess wouldn't be aware of this. I want to point that out because, again, that sort of fixation not only is the kind of thing that any human being from three years of relative isolation would do, but also 
is a classic symptom of real psychological denial. Real psychological denial is not just, no, that's not true. Real denial is clinging to something that shows that that's not true. Tess would never let that happen. There is no way she would allow that. There is no way that's possible. I've got this, therefore you're wrong. I got my boat. We just got to get to the coast. We got to get that boat and everything will be fine. Props if you know what I'm referencing. Six's reaction, being someone who is effectively you know, a few hours old, a few days old, is a lot more interesting and telling in the opposite direction. Denial? No. No, this is not happening. This can't be happening. I, I, it's, it's more manic denial rather than suppressive denial, if that makes any kind of sense. He starts raging, oh, there's got to be a secret room. There's got to be a room. And it's funny how quickly he goes from they might be hiding something from us to there absolutely has to be a room somewhere. All I have to do is find it. And that kind of shift there of total certainty is, again, another form of that type of denial. It's very well done. Huge credit, by the way, to Sam Rockwell, the, the actor. He, he nails both roles. And I love the way that five and six play off of each other. Because five really does feel like someone who has mellowed and developed and basically had three years to, to develop into a unique person. Five is not uh, Sam. Uh, Sam Bell. There we go. <laughs> I want to say Sam Rockwell. Damn it, did you have to make it the same name? Five is not Sam Bell. Five is Sam Bell Five, a totally unique, distinct person. Six is probably our best insight into what the original Sam was like 15 years ago, with just a few bare memories dumped in. Although we don't know how much that was filtered. This feels like a good time to bring up something else. First of all, we know Sam Original is on Earth. Uh, first of all, that it was Sam Rockwell voicing, you know, hey, Dad, someone's asking about Mom. And he's, Who's someone, someone's asking about Mom? That's Sam Rockwell's voice. And on the subtitles it is, and in the interviews and other uh, stuff, it is confirmed that that is, in fact, Sam Bell, the original. Now, what we don't know is if Sam Bell original was Sam Bell 1, or if Sam Bell 1 was clone 1. But what I really want to ask is given that Sam Bell original is back on Earth, how complicit in this horrific affair do you think Sam Bell original was? Because what I see is an unfortunately realistic possibility of Sam Bell original just kind of going along with this whole thing. Yeah, sure, scan my brain, take my DNA, make some clones of me, I'll sign the right forms, you give me a nice big paycheck, I go back to my life. He might not even fully be cognizant of what's going to happen to the clones, like the whole death cycle thing. He might just think he's signing up a clone of himself for this work. Curious what you guys think of that. It's also possible that he is relatively innocent of this, that he was the original who went up, came back after his tour, and then they woke up Sam 1. We don't know. We also don't know what's going to happen to the company uh, after Sam 6 gets home, although... One of the little blurbs in there that I caught was the whole uh, stock drops 30 points or whatever like that. I hope that company burns in hell, by the way. Lunar Industries. Lunar Industries. Um, so what's hilariously funny about this is Lunar Industries is incompetent in an extremely realistic way. I could totally see a real-life company pulling off something like this. 
And I don't mean that as a cynical statement. Because, I mean, yeah, harvesting clones for the slaughter is messed up. Because by the time those three years are up and they start to degrade, like we see happens with five, and we see the little, um, in the logs, we see it happening to the previous Sams as well. Uh, to, to one, two, three, or excuse me, two, three, four. Two, three, four. Maybe we see it to one, two, three, four. I, I, I should have counted. Well, anyways, we see it happen to the previous Sams and how they're euthanized. What I really want to know... Okay, rewind, rewind. I could see a company being as money-driven and incompetent as to be as stupid as Lunar Industries is. No, seriously, hear me out for a second. Their entire setup is flimsy as crap. Gertie's is not designed to be the stoolie for the company that he needs to be. There are so many different ways for something to go wrong from the perspective of the actual tra uh, trawlers gathering the helium-3, from the radio jammers, from the actual lunar module he takes out, and there's basically no real security. There's nothing locking any of the SAMs out from any of this that can't be easily and almost effortlessly worked around. But that makes sense. First of all, how good is security at wherever you work? But second of all, and getting more to the point, that is... I'm trying to think how to phrase this. There's a difference in mentality between I want to put out the best possible product and I want to make the most possible money. Now, these two things are not necessarily incongruent, but I've noticed in real life that a lot of companies tend to lean, well, towards one direction or another, basically. And usually more towards the money side of things. I mean, we could put in massive security and a super AI that is constantly being memory wiped to ensure that it doesn't have any droid effect happening. But that takes time, and that takes money, and that's extra expenses. Which isn't really necessary, right? I mean, can't you just picture the guys in the meeting room talking to each other and debating, well, do we want to add the extra layer of security to the outer hatches? Do we want to do something additional with the, you know, push the, the, the radio jammers out even further? Nah. That's going to take, do you know how expensive it's going to be to push those out there and to, to, to move them in that direction? That's crazy. You get my point, right? I find it almost eerily believable. This is what I like to call horror that I enjoy. Um, I, I, actually, I just came up with that phrase just now, but <laughs> I have been asked so many times over the years why I'm not into horror, and my usual response is because I don't like gore, and I don't like jump scares, and most horror films or horror games are not horrifying to me. They're either boring or gross. Now, I mean no insult to anybody who likes that kind of thing. This is just my personal perspective. But then people look at me like, well, you really like the horror of Half-Life 2? And I was like, well, yeah, I do, because it's horrifying. Just like this film is. What this company is doing is horrifying and very believable and very realistic. During their big plan to have him, you know, have to have Six come back, one of the things that I loved most about it is that they had the trawler ram into one of the radar jammers. Because no matter what they do, they're not going to get that jammer back up and running before Seven managed to be able to do anything. And what do you think is going to happen the first time Seven tries to call home? And that's also kind of brilliant because that will add weight to Six's argument. When Six gets back home to Earth and he's talking about all this, when Seven starts calling home, right? Ah, good stuff, good stuff. Um, 
so gosh, I'm I'm just jumping all over the place in my notes here. I just finished the film right now. I'm actually looking at my uh my notes here. I, I had a couple of quick thoughts. First of all, um do you think the Sams have a legitimate work ethic, or do you think having something to work on is just better than nothing? I know from experience what it's like to look forward to something minor and stupid that I don't care for or enjoy doing because it is something to do, when otherwise I have nothing to do. It's not pleasant, but I could totally get that. And I, I just find it interesting that maybe Sam really does have a good work ethic and just really wants to get out there and get this fixed and get this working. Or maybe he just wants something to do that isn't running on a treadmill or watching old TV. Um, I wrote a note about here, about the midway point. It was when 5 and 6 really started... Uh, talking to each other. Good visual distinction between the two Sams. Good acting distinction. Like I said, they act completely differently from each other, really. It kind of helps to, once again, showcase not only that they're different people, but as kind of a slice of how different we in real life would be if we were, for example, to meet ourselves from three years ago. Now, that might not be super different for me personally, but that's because I've started to settle a little bit. But if you would jump back maybe ten years... <laughs> grab myself. You're stupid! Um, <laughs> but I bring this up because I, the note I wrote down is, this is a one-act play. Now, I mean that as a complete um, positive. Now, I don't mean this literally because I think the actual structure of a one-act doesn't fit this, but everything about the tone and the feeling and the presentation reminded me of the good old one-acts. Now, when I say that, when I used to go into acting, forgive me for segueing for a moment, when I used to go, uh, go into acting and do uh, presentations and plays and uh, a lot of theater work and, of course, for school as well, one-acts were some of my favorite stuff to do. And I think the reason why is because a one-act doesn't rely on a lot of set dressing. A one-act doesn't rely on specific lighting setup. A one-act relies on an actor and however many other actors are involved. The entire weight of the performance is resting on the actors. It is all about the characters. And you guys know I eat up character stuff. And I have since I was young. Because, you know, as I just said, even back in school. So this one act of Sam 5 and Sam 6, of Sam Rockwell acting against himself, is brilliant. And it is a very, 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 very tightly focused character piece. It's funny because it's not like I would call the film cheap. It does good work with the sets it has. But if you pay attention, the sets are also small. And outdoors, the model work is excellent. And it is actually models, from what I understand. In fact, they even designed it and did their work on the physics of how it would work, which is brilliant. But, so, it, so it's all very believable. But still, it's not the kind of thing you'd expect in a, a typical science fiction work. It is very low budget and very low key because that camera, metaphorically speaking, is zoomed in as far in as it can get. This is all about these people, these real People. Sam Six flat out says that to Gerties. He says, we're not programmed, we're people. And I like to think he was including Gerties in that, especially when he pulled the kick me thing off there. That's just my opinion. We're people. And that's kind of the point, isn't it? How people react to things. The other thing I want to bring up is the idea of a bottle show. Just really quick. Because it was another concept that occurred to me. Over in television, a bottle show is usually when... 
uh, we're running low on money, let's do a bottle show. Now, traditionally, historically, and I'm talking going back way, you know, in the pre-80s, 70s, 60s era of television, bottle shows were bad. They were like clip shows. They were what you did when you couldn't do what you really wanted to do. But at certain points in time, Doctor Who started doing this, um, TNG started doing this, you know, Star Trek original series did this. Certain shows would start using bottle shows as a strength, just like this film does. Okay, we don't have the film and budget to show the super mega scanning process and, and the clone waking up and all this super high digital tech, you know, television. Wouldn't it be common? <laughs> I'm not complaining, but wouldn't it be common in a science fiction flick to be like, all right, show me, show me the rovers. And then like this 3D model hologram appears in the air above him and it shows the actual rovers out here and the rovers out here and he, he like, starts manipulating it with his hand. You know what I'm talking about, right? And then he's like, okay, hmm, let's go to this. Oh, I need to contact Earth. And a new bubble pops up in the corner. Okay, it's a message from her. Okay. No, it's all very low-tech, very believable stuff. The kind of stuff we could see right now in real life actually being a thing. And I think that adds strength to the film. Because then the only thing that's lifting the film up is, going back to my original comment, the actors. So, getting back to the film itself, I say, I'm sorry, I don't actually have a lot to say about it. It is, it's a one act, right? Um, I do love the escalation that happens between five and six. Uh, it's not only a good showcasing, uh, like a, an absolute on the board, this is how different these two people are, but also how similar these two people are since they came from the same source, and how, how do I put this? It is a unique and excellent form of exposition because not only does it inform us on Sam Bell, the person with anger issues, the person who drove away his wife for months because he had a temper, but also it showcases how much Sam Bell can and does change in new directions given the opportunity to do so. And it gives us our first real exposition on Sam 5 degenerating. Now, we've actually had hints of that before. He talks about his headaches. He talks about how he's having pains and aches that he hasn't mentioned before. But that is the first scene where it's made very apparent that Sam 5 is literally degenerating. I didn't hit you that hard, and he's just gushing blood, right? Good stuff, good stuff. Um, there's also a really nice point at the 50-minute mark where Gertie's finally tells... Uh, Sam 6, I believe, about the, the truth of the encoded memories and how they were clones and whatnot. One, there's two things I like about it. Uh, first of all, it's horrifying because it, it brings to mind one of the things I personally find horrifying about the very idea of cryogenics. Because all the previous Sams had been put into the cryotube and then murdered. And I'm going to say that as clearly as I can. This is not killing. I mean, you could argue it's mercy killing. And I have a feeling that's how Gertie's has thought of it over the years. Mercy killing. If he doesn't kill them mercifully, they're going to slowly degenerate and die in horrific pain and agony. But thanks to the way this is all set up, I think that we can say that Lunar Industries is murdering these people. Yes, these people. Excuse me for sounding angry. But Gertie's, he has a little smiley face thing, which is great. But the whole time he's relating all this to Sam, it's a frowny face. The whole time. It doesn't even budge from that. That speaks so many volumes right there. I don't even know what else to add to that. 
the second layer of the mystery, because at 20, I wrote this down, at the 29 minute mark, it's like, oh my god, there's two Sams. But the film doesn't make that a strong point. It spends no real time on it. Like, there's two Sams, and then they just are kind of okay with it. They just kind of interact with each other, and they don't even really talk about the reality of it until much later at about the 50-minute mark, where they start talking about the cloning and the degeneration, all that fun stuff. I like that because, in my opinion, too much fiction in general, not just um, movies or books or games or anything, even just something that people will tend to write on their own, whether it's fan fiction or independent works or whatever, too much of literature across the board tends to rely too much on the twist as the as the key point. Now, to explain what I mean by that, there's nothing wrong with a twist. I'm, I'm down with a good twist. I enjoy a good twist. But too many stories are kind of a weak story whose only real strength is the strength of the twist itself. You know what I mean? And I think too many writers lean too heavily on that twist. This film does not. Instead, this film has two twists. First is the fact that they're clones. Second is the fact that the clones are degenerating. Those are the two twists right there. And the first twist is revealed very early on, pretty much as soon as we get done with the isolation stuff with uh, with Sam 5. And then twist 2 happens pretty much right during the fight, as I mentioned. And from that point onwards, it's kind of a gradual reveal. They never even say flat out, you're dying. They just kind of slowly build up to that. And... I like that, because the strength of the story then, again, sits on everything else. Now, I'm checking my notes here. (sighs) They do some good storytelling stuff, good directing stuff. Um, Very efficient storytelling, where five is examining one thing, and six is examining the other. It's kind of funny, because it's literally the protagonist being in two locations at the same time is what we actually have happening here from a narrative perspective. And so five is finding out about the euthanizing and the other clones, and six is finding out about the jammers. And thus, between the two of them, we, the audience, have now gotten all the necessary exposition. Again, good exposition dumping. And the two of them can now collude on what they want to do next. It's all good stuff. Um, So there's... Two last things. God, I really don't have much to say about this film. It was a good film. I really liked it. I just don't have much to talk about. First thing I want to talk about is the gravity of what it would feel like. They don't spend too much time on this, but they do spend just enough for you to feel what's going through Sam 5's heart and Sam 6 when both of them find out about Tess dying and their daughter Eve being 15. Sam 5 stumbles and stutters for like 30 seconds. Like he, he can't even talk because he's he's having trouble processing what he's finding out. Now, they don't bother... They do a good thing. They don't make Sam 6's reaction the same, and they don't spend the same amount of time on it, because that would just be redundant. Instead, Sam 6 pulls up the thing, and he just starts watching it. And it gets to the part where, you know, she died five years... And Sam 6 just does... Great credit to Rockwell. He just kind of does this very subtle... Like, there's just this shudder that went through his whole body. Like, what? <laughs> but he doesn't say that. It is very understated. And uh, very well done. And then, of course, Five lays down his life for Six, and they both want to ensure that no futures have this same problem. Makes me wonder what would happen next, actually. In real life, probably nothing. You violated your contract by coming home. You're under arrest or, or being fined. I don't want to be too cynical, though. But I have to be, because this one act is really about tragedy. This is actually a tragic story, a tragic horror story is what I would call this. This is the destruction of two men's lives. 
Um, technically, it's actually the destruction of six men's lives, but we don't really see one, two, three, four, and we don't really know if one was original or not. But this specific story is about five, and we learn a lot about him, a lot about what he's gone through, how he feels, how he works, and we see him die, and he lays down his life for heroic cause. And we see six, and his life is just barely beginning, and it's already being ruined, and, and they're probably going to come out and shoot him to death with their freaking assault rifles. God, can you imagine shooting in inside the base? That's kind of insane. What were they planning to do? Anyways, you know, Six's life is thrown into the into the mulcher, basically, and he has to go home and try to convince them of this. And we don't even see what happens to Seven. Remember, Seven is a thing. Seven starts to wake up as of the end of the film. So at least one more character is added to this tragedy by the end. It's good stuff. And it's horrible stuff. And I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on it. And I'll see you guys next time.